Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Bang to Rights. My name is Peter Murray. I'm a lecturer in multimedia journalism here at Manchester Metropolitan Uni. I'm joined here in the departmental newsroom actually today by my colleagues Dave Porter. Hello Dave. Hi Pete. And by Jeremy Craddock. Hi Pete. Hi both. Uh, we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon just ahead of the news gathering session for our Northern Quota website um, here in the newsroom. So there might be some background chat going on as students look for, for <laughs> stories to cover this afternoon and I imagine there'll probably be some, some ins and outs, people coming and going and so on. But we wanted to tackle an issue actually that's very much in the news this week. That's the row over the BBC Breakfast presenter Naga Munchetti and the Corporation's Editorial Complaints Board. We'll come to that in just a moment, but I wanted first of all to have a quick look at the news which came in overnight that the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, Harry and Meghan, are taking legal action against the Mail on Sunday over its story last February when it published what it said were the contents of a leaked handwritten letter from Meghan to her estranged father. Now, her lawyers described the story as part of a campaign of false and deliberately derogatory stories about her. Jez, what, what was in that original story then and, and then how have the Royal Highnesses reacted? Yeah, well, I was taking a look at the uh, the original story today, which is still up online on the Mail's website. Um, but it's it's a story about this leaked letter, uh, which Meghan has written to her father, Thomas Markle. As we'll know from previous stories, uh, their relationship seems to be strained since uh, she married uh, Harry. But it's, I think it's um, a letter from Meghan... Uh, Saying that she she's sad that their relationships re reached this stage and trying to mm. you know uh, reflect on the fact that, that he's perhaps spoken publicly about her in a, in a negative way. Um, the Mail have published this letter, um, and uh, this was back in February. Uh, th this news now breaking in October that the uh, the Sussexes are going to uh, sue the Mail over this this letter, and it's it. It's a very strongly worded um, criticism. It's remarkably really. strongly yeah, worded, isn't it? Probably yeah, the most surprising. potent such statement yeah. of, we've ever seen from the Royals, really. Um, and Harry's talking in it, defending Meghan, but he's making reference to his mother as well and the way the sections of the media treated his mother, obviously the implications that led to her, her death and all that, and saying that uh, Meghan is now suffering from the same kind of treatment from certain sections of the uh, yeah. tabloid press. And their statement sort of singles out, if you like, one particular group of... Yes. Of news gather of of journalists. Yeah. So, so, so he's you, you definitely sort of, taking him a, a particular kind of newspaper yeah. coverage. And you sort of get the impression that maybe they're using this as a test case against the mail, but it's kind of a warning shot to other yeah. like minded uh, tabloids. One of the interesting things I was reading this morning the statement from their lawyers from Sheilers and kind of reading in between the lines, it looks like there might have been some attempts to reach a settlement, which it looks yes. like Associated Newspapers has just kind of turned down and not going to withdraw the story. I think the time scale between it being published in mm. February and this announcement now kind of would suggest that, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, but the solicitors representing Harry and Meghan are saying that the, it will be on the grounds of unlawful um, use of private information, uh, breach of copyright, I think, mm. and data protection legislation as well. Yeah. Dave, where, where do you think the... What, what are the chances, do you think? I think uh, very good. It's like a rerun of Prince Charles's diaries, uh, which is almost an exact copy. Uh, the action was, was copyright, misuse of private information. Uh, I mean, interesting that case where 
Prince Charles distributed his diary to a select group of friends. So the argument would be that it was no longer private, but in fact that, that still held. So I think in this case it would be very hard. I'm sure the male would say public interest. She's a public figure. She's married to uh, a prince. You know, she, she campaigned over public issues. But effectively it's a private letter sent from a daughter to a father over a very, you know, especially private matter breakdown of an, an apparent breakdown of a relationship. So I could see exactly where they're coming from in terms of, you know, copyright of the letter, could break of mm-hmm. a breach of confidence, uh, misuse of private information. Um, I, I think, that, you know, it's, they've got a very strong case, it appears to me. And, um, yeah, I think the time scale is interesting. And to, just, as what ha- just as happened with the, the Prince Charles's letters uh, some years His back... Diary, yeah. The, di- the, the, the diary, the, that... That the case gave rise to a whole lot of stories about the contents of the mm-hmm. diaries. Yeah. Is there a danger that this might allow the newspapers to rake over some of the details about about Meghan and her dad's relationship? Yeah, it, I, I'm sure that will inevitably follow, won't it? Mm. Um, I think the copyright infringement is an interesting one as well, because um, I was trying to find out yeah, where I the letters you were come looking, from. Scouring through the textbooks yeah. to find out who who has the copyright. Yeah, now. and 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 obviously, well, from what. What we know, it's the original. So the writer of the letter owns the copyright, mm. but the uh, the recipient of the letter owns the actual physical the document. Physical document. But I, I think there was some reference. I could be wrong on this. That the letter had been leaked by Thomas Markle. But I'm, as I say, I may be wrong on that. Mm. Um, one, yeah. I mean, you, you see, in these cases, don't you? That they, they don't just bring one action. It, it's a multiple. Bit like you know, Naomi Campbell. Um, and then but it will be down to the courts to decide mm. which which succeed and which 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 get left by the wayside when it comes to the case. Yeah, interesting. And I think what, just going back to what Jez was saying earlier about you know. We've just talked about the legal aspect of this, and then, of course, there's the ethical aspect, which mm. is an adjunct about the um, ethical practices of the press, Paul Leveson. Yes. So it's two different debates here, really. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, as, as ever, we've got the mixture of the two, and mm. I mean, I'm sure we'll return to this in a, yes. in a couple of weeks' time. Yeah. I'm not sure we'll not least in lectures and seminars. No, sure. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We'll definitely come to that. But anyway, in the meantime, back to one of the other issues that we wanted to tackle today, and that's the, the storm which engulfed the BBC over Naga Manchetti and the Corporation's Editorial Complaints Board. Now, you may know that the, direct, the Director General of the BBC, Lord Hall, has reversed the ruling from the board which found Naga Manchetti had breached the guidelines on impartiality. This happened during an exchange with our fellow presenter Dan Walker about President Trump's tweets telling four US congresswomen to go back to where they came from. Now, dozens of MPs, scores of BBC journalists and numerous high-profile black and minority ethnic activists, actors and authors and BBC contributors had called for the corporation to reverse that decision. And then, on Tuesday night, came Tony Hall's announcement. It was widely welcomed, but not by everybody. The last Director General but one, Mark Thompson, says the BBC's reputation for impartiality has been turned on itself. And one former BBC chairman, Lord Grade, told Newsnight the change of heart undermines the BBC's record. I don't care who it alienated, the BBC's impartiality is sacrosanct, and the BBC has to defend that. The day it concedes anything in the way of impartiality, uh, uh, it's the day, that's the end, it spells the end of BBC journalism. So I, I let, if people want opinions, let them go to social media or Fox News. They certainly don't go to the BBC for that. And the BBC's impartiality is absolutely sacrosanct. 
So absolutely sacrosanct, he says, this impartiality. Yes. Where, um, what do you think, Jess? Yeah, I, I saw the uh, interview with Michael Grade, um, and he was so, he was trying to separate the issue of race, which was obviously the, uh, our racism, which was the subject of the discussion between Dan Walker and Nigel Munchetti, trying to separate that from the issue of uh, impartiality uh, and, and her expressing an opinion on yes. what. President yeah, Trump had done. Yeah, um, and he was saying that was absolutely sacrosanct, and in that sense, it was a breach of the, of the uh, guidelines. But they also interviewed Jim Waterson of, of The Guardian, who was making the point that that kind of adherence to the guidelines and how um, impartiality is absolutely paramount, that's sort of changing, really, with uh, changing attitudes, certainly with younger people who are consuming news, who perhaps mm. think that there should be room for editorialising within the context of stories. Um, so I think that's a, that's, um, a division that we're going to see widen, and maybe we'll see the way news is reported evolving, yeah. really. We, we were talking earlier, I, I just, um, I'm kind of halfway through reading about the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism has just brought out a report this week um, looking at public service broadcasters and their audience and how their audience has changed. And it seems to be mostly older people, um, mostly people who have a quite a diverse viewpoint on politics, mm -hmm. but they've found that far-right people are increasingly alienated from mainstream public service broadcasting mm. and that that observation kind of coinciding with this complaint from one single person who was claiming about the kind of far left bias in the BBC it's quite interesting that maybe the BBC might have to think about changing its editorial perspective yes. in, mm. in the light yeah. of some of that stuff so I'll uh, Dave, we'll come to you just to say I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll put in a link to that in, yes. the, in the show notes so people can read the Oxford uh, Institute report. But it's, it's certainly fascinating reading, and that will come up in lectures as well. Dave, what, what do you just, think? Just, I think, a couple of things. It's a very much a BBC thing. Yeah, uh, and, it uh, is. I, you know, yeah. uh, I heard Robert Passon in a really good radio discussion a couple of weeks ago saying on this very same topic, uh, uh, increasingly he he's not afraid to say things as he thinks they are. And if that's construed as comment mm. so he was giving an example whereby he said uh, I'm not afraid to say and I have said that Brexit will mean the, the economy slows down we'll all be worse off I, I, I posi I'm positing that as a fact and, and he said I think if I was we're still working at the BBC mm. that possibly wouldn't be allowed the other point is to think to make his context you wouldn't I think if this had happened, this wouldn't happen at News at 10 or on Channel 4 News. And if it did, it would definitely be a stronger case for saying mm. that there'd been some breach. I think the fact that, you know, as you were saying, it's a self-driven, almost magazine mm. style. Mm. It was a conversation. And, and I, I do personally think, you know, I'm, I'm big on this thing that we're not, we're not the story journalists. We're here to report it. And comment is another uh, another mm. department and go to that department if you want that mm. but you know I think you've got to be flexible and, and look at the whole context and say given as you say Peter it was a conversation between two presenters it was entirely legitimate and I think in this instance given the nature mm. of the programme, the nature of discussion, what are the accepted facts? I think the BBC was right to turn around and say actually in this instance but I still think as a principle you know Notwithstanding, you know, grade. You, you still want to be able to separate. I still really do. Yeah. I feel quite strongly that there yeah. has to be separation. And I just feel slightly uneasy about journalists giving their views in a, well, certainly a news programme. Mm -hmm. um, where does news then become comment? Yeah. I think it's a potentially, as Jess says, 
maybe I'm just a middle-aged white male. Well, I am, of course. Uh, <laughs> but taking that aside, you know, is it, things are changing. Yeah, I mean, it's in my previous life as an NUJ rep at the BBC, I've kind of come across some of these editorial complaints in the past, and there's a long-running grievance among BBC journalists that the the senior management is either is either or both scared of the audience mm-hmm. and terrified mm-hmm. of editorial complaints, mm-hmm. and that they will bend over backwards to accommodate some of yes. them. And I'd, I, I'm sure I, I haven't seen too much of what BBC, uh, people inside journalists inside the BBC have been saying about the Nagamanchetti decision, but I, I'm, it's fairly certain that there was a lot of pressure mm. on Tony Hall and others right up yes. at the top of the BBC yeah. to change this because yeah. I think a lot of them felt that it was absolutely outrageous. And it's quite remarkable when you think about that it was just one complaint. We're not talking about one person. Yeah. We're not talking about hundreds of complaints. Yeah. It's one complaint on the grounds of political bias. Um, Where was that from? Well, yes, well, exactly. That's and that's another story, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that is another story. But anyway, so so moving on. Um, as working journalists, we all know the meaning of, of a slow news day. Nothing much is going on. Every page and paragraph or minute of airtime is a real struggle to fill, and the news desk has to grab the smallest fragments of a story to try to dig out something, anything that might be of interest to the readers, the viewers, or the listeners. But these days. Slow news has taken on a whole new meaning because slow journalism is a style of news gathering which proponents say is more methodical, more thoughtful and maybe even more truthful than the frequently frantic first draft of history that most of us have been brought up with. Dave, tell us how slow journalism came to Manchester Met. Okay, well, in the form of Matthew Dancona, yeah. actually, and what... Uh, so, Tortoise Media is a... a Slow News website, I think they wouldn't mind me saying that. Yep. Uh, I think the motto is Slow Up and Wise Down, set up by James Harding, ex-BBC. And so they asked if they could come and speak to our students, which was fantastic, and host a think-in, you know, a very kind of informal debate. It was around the topic of uh, the safe campus, or we say from, from harassment. So we got, we got Matthew in with um, a group of people, and we from uh, Tortoise and then an expert on sexual um, health uh, and then another journalist and had a discussion, you know, and um, the idea being that, you know, we Tortoise News, the, the remit of them is really to to pick up on issues which the uh, mainstream media just treat on the surface level. So we, we can really dig deep and, uh, and examine forensically issues which, you know, um, on a day-to-day basis, simply we don't have the time as journalists to do. So it's a, you know, I think it's great for students to realise that actually because we teach them breaking news, get intro, bash it out, get it quick on the website, but actually to step back and, you know, to look at issues in a wider uh, level uh, and just give yourself a bit of space. And I think perhaps as journalism journalists, we do that, we have done that historically not very well. Yeah, so I, I got a little bit more background about tortoise and about all that slow journalism ethic and also actually about Brexit and political coverage. We can't escape Brexit. Uh, so I, I, when I spoke, to, I spoke to Matthew Dancona just before that session started. Here we go. Tortoise is a, a new project that actually only went fully live in April, although it had been in what's called beta mode for a while, yes. which is very much the tortoise style to, to open things up and to invite consultation and 
ask people what they what they think. Um, and it was started by uh, three people, uh, James Harding, who's a former Times editor and BBC News director, Katie Vanek-Smith, who's a former president of the Wall Street Journal and Dow Jones, and Matthew Barzen, who's a former US ambassador to uh, the UK and Sweden. And Katie and James are in the office in Fitzrovia and full-time. Matthew lives in America. Um, and the mission really was to try and take uh, stock of where we were in the media and to think a little bit about the kind of the cacophony and the bombardment of data that we were getting and news um, from our device, digital devices and the how hard it was getting to make sense in all that of what the deeper forces driving the news were that we were the news was uh, we were working for the news rather than vice versa and this came under the sort of heading of slow journalism, which I think is sometimes misunderstood as doing less work. But actually, it, <laughs> it's quite, it, it's quite the opposite, because because slow journalism means waiting until a piece is ready to be published um, and taking you know fastidious care and editing with it. So the detail that goes into a tortoise piece that appears on our app is phenomenal and um you know i've been writing i joined the times in 1991 and i've been working for i edited the spectator and i've been a columnist on various papers and i can honestly say that the 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 standards and quality control at tortoise is something i've never experienced and it's delightful because i think there's a huge role ahead of the the news media in the years ahead to to regain trust and to also make people feel that they are involved in the in in the process of the media there's not a great gulf dividing them from it and it's that involvement that's the reason that you hear roughly that's absolutely hear i mean we are we are not a subscription service we're a membership uh, organization and another aspect of that and at the heart of our journalism is the idea of the thinking which is not a traditional media panel event it's really james harding invented it to if you like uh, take the editorial conference model and open source it so that people could come in, hear a couple of experts talk about an issue, which could be ranging from, um, you know, what are the best condiments to what's the future of Brexit. It could be any any number of uh, themes. Um, and to invite people to participate. And the only really strict rule at Thinkings is that people can't ask questions. They have to contribute. So it turns on its head the usual rule at media events. And then, um, as today, where we're, we're, we're talking about our campus is safe, um, we will go away on the basis of what we hear and... Um, make journalistic use of those ideas recommendations thoughts so for us it's a rolling process of being in receive mode and our journalism is you know heavily driven by what we learn and what we hear and it's one of the inspiring things actually having now done quite a few thinkings is how much people have to say i mean one hears all the time about how disengaged people are how they're not interested in politics or policy um, how there's a kind of despondency out there and, and th th there may be some despondency but there's an awful lot of desire to see things get better and to contribute and get involved and that's what we want to be doing we want to be at the heart of that and look at things under certain themes like 
people living to 100 years, the, the future of the planet, the impact of technology, um, and so on. And that we've set our face to, to um, understanding the world under those headings and, and really not being driven as much as other organisations by the daily news agenda. It's going to be really fascinating to hear what to hear and see what some of the students have to contribute to that because I'm sure there's going to be a lot of um, quite strong opinions from the students themselves. And and for, some of the, absolutely some of the new ones who are very new to campus, and, and this will be a completely different experience. For and them. I think what's interesting is that contrary to some of the stereotypes you read in the press about snowflakes and entitled sure. millennials, actually I think it's a really engaged, interesting, and uh, committed generation and I've been very struck by this because 40% of our membership are under 30 which is quite quite large for a startup and so many of the voices we hear in our thinkings back in London and elsewhere are from young people and they are f they're bristling with ideas um, full of commitment I think there's a this is a really exciting generation coming through now, we're going to hear from some of the students in a moment because I've already booked in a couple to get some reactions to what it is that, that happens this evening. But while we've got you here, you mentioned, as you say, your former editor of The Spectator, political columnist for many, many, many years. What on earth is going on? <laughs> well, I've kind of thrown my mystic meg hat out because it, it making prophecies uh, at the moment is 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 a, is a fool's game what is certain is that the supreme court ruling is a massive event um and i think it has had a number of effects i mean obviously the most immediate of which is is the calling back of parliament um but it's also the beginning of a huge battle uh because Boris, this is only the is it? oh goodness yes i mean th this is the start um i mean the, the the supreme court's ruling is actually one of the most impressive you know documents about how representative democracy and the rule of law work in this country i've ever read it's a beautiful piece of prose i recommend it's also quite it, it's readable isn't it it's very it's readable not like a, a, it, the, the well I, I don't know this for a fact, but it, it reads to me like those rulings do that have been written by a single hand, which one can only assume was Baroness Hale, the president of the Supreme Court, but it, that may not be correct. It certainly, it does read as a pure text. And it's a, it's a, it's a serious indictment of, of this government, and it can't be um, set aside. But what's interesting is that I think, I mean, I was thinking about this this morning actually and trying to work out if there was any recent prime minister who wouldn't have resigned uh, in these circumstances and there is only one and it's Boris Johnson and he will cling on, on to power and you could already see today in the House of Commons the way in which the government is trying to frame this as the establishment versus the people you know bad judges taking away Brexit from the people and are, do, you, do you think they're on to something there in the sense that people may be if we look at the news agenda a lot of people may be much much more concerned about the collapse of thomas cook than they are the, and the, than they are about lady hill or, or any of the judges or the the political effect of yes oh I, I think you have to be absolutely hard-nosed about this i mean the constitutional implications of the the judgment are phenomenal the politics of it are very hard to read yet because, as you imply, a lot of people will think, will find that narrative quite appealing, which is 
you know, men in gowns, women in gowns, robes, stopping yet again, obstructing the 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 implementation of a decision taken in 2016. Now, that's a very dangerous road to go down. Um, it's funny because um, they're 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 framing it as who governs Britain. The last time that was done was in 1974. That was Edward Heath positioning himself as the the prime minister who would stop union you know chaos and and preserve order now you've got a another conservative prime minister um, positioning himself as the enemy of the judges the enemy of the liberal elite the enemy of the media the enemy of the eu bureaucracy it's a very very you know uh strongly populist agenda and it it may well have some success um but let's not be under any illusions about what's at stake here because what I've been shocked by um, having written about politics off and on I suppose for what nearly 28 years is I've never I've never heard ministers be so cavalier about the rule of law I mean I've never heard of any party uh, talk about um, you know we'll we'll see we'll wait till we see the legislation before we follow it and make quite snide remarks about the politicization of the judiciary and it's very interesting watching the old center-right one nation conservative party basically dying and being replaced by this populist right movement um, that has this incredibly strong anti-establishment anti-elite um, center to it um, and of course, you can say it's ridiculous. You know, the, the the party is stuffed full of millionaires and Etonians. I mean, how can that work? But this is all about, in a way, presentation. And, you know, Boris Johnson has always presented himself with a degree of success as a popular tribune. Now, I personally think that's a ludicrous claim, but I'm only one person or one voter. There are, I think, a lot of people out there who think that he might just be the person to get us over the line. The problem is he has to do it through Parliament. And now, by law, by judicial decision, he has to do it through Parliament. So th this is going to be a very interesting period. I think he, what he will be trying to do, and indeed it was interesting watching Geoffrey Cox, the Attorney General, in the Commons already revving this up, is say, come on, give me an election, give me an election. And it's very hard, day after day, for opposition parties to resist that call. Um, they want other than the SNP, they want to resist it because they don't want to give him an election that might enable him to sneak through no deal. But there's a lot of weeks left in which, you know, they have to kind of keep that at bay. And I think there's a serious battle there because it's, again, it's a powerful, it's a powerful slogan, isn't it? Let the people decide, give us a vote. Um, so I, th I think it's going to be a very turbulent few weeks leading up to October the 31st. You said a moment ago that you're not going to start predicting the future. <laughs> who, would, who would even dare? So let's let's spool back a little bit to kind of the, the one of the purposes of the podcast, which is looking at journalism and the role yeah. of journalism in all of that. So, a, do you think journalists have served the debate well to their their readers, their viewers, whatever? But also now, for the next little while, however long this 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 craziness lasts. 
what what will be the role of of good political journalism in, in the coming period? Because obviously Boris Johnson and and to some extent all the other parties will want to leapfrog the journalists and get directly to the audience. Well, I've I've written about what I think you know is a, a slightly personal column, but also uh, aimed at my colleagues in the media that that I think we did give him an easy ride, and I think we have to own our part in that. That because he was a journalist, because he was popular. Uh, in the trade, you know, he got an easier ride than if he'd been an accountant. You know, if, if Boris Johnson had been an accountant, I'm not sure he'd be in number 10 now. He was indulged. And I think that we have to own our part in his rise and, and the lack of accountability, the, 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 the fact that he, he, there seemed to be different rules for him. Um, however, to look to the future, um, in, in the weeks ahead and, and the, the months and years ahead as well, actually, because I think this is not just a sort of temporary uh, issue. I think that there's a na now a huge disconnect um, between the political and media class and uh, everyone else. And there's a risk that politics becomes almost like sports journalism in that, you know, if you like that sport, you read it and you love it and you know inside baseball you you get to know all the characters and you have strong views and you talk to people very knowledgeably about it the difference however is that politics is about citizenship and it affects everything and i think the most worrying thing is it's become seen as a very uh, obscure and often irrelevant uh, subject and you know I, I worry hearing young people say what does this have to do with me and, you know, there are lots of obvious answers about, well, you know, we all depend on the rule of law. We all depend upon pluralism. We all depend upon the law that enables us to live together as a community. We all depend upon parliamentary representation to ensure that our rights and our, you know, our grievances are represented where they should be and the government is held to account. But Parliament, at the best of times these days, is a hard sell because... You know, representative democracy in the era of reality TV, uh, digitalization, uh, Deliveroo, you know, Uber, the instant instantaneous response. Um, the idea of representation is quite hard to sell. And my own view is that we've got to go really back to scratch and start thinking about why this failure has happened and and really quite urgently address the issue of how we can make the uh, the things that we the things that we write about comprehensible to people in a way that, that 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 speaks to their lives because I think that has that link which is after all the only point has got broken. Well, my colleagues Jez and Deborah will be really chuffed at what you say because we ended up talking about comparing all of this to sports journalism, <laughs> so they'll be very pleased to hear that. <laughs> But you have, we, I know you've got, you've got a gig to go to now. Great. So, well, Dancona, thank you lovely to talk to you. My pleasure. Thank you so much. So Matthew Dancona of The Tortoise, and thanks to, thanks to him, obviously, and, and the whole of The Tortoise crew that came here. Um, now, just before we started recording, Boris Johnson was delivering his keenly awaited closing speech to the Conservative Conference just up the road here in Manchester City Centre. So, of course, we'll keep an eye on that and how political journalists respond to his first, and he says, final Brexit proposals to the EU27. But after that session finished with Matt, I heard the thoughts and reactions from some of our students and fellow tutors. I spoke to students Neve and Imogen, and to my colleague Don Bryan, and also to Claudia from The Tortoise. First, Neve and Imogen. 
I thought this evening was really insightful and it really brought up some topics that I wouldn't consider. And, um, you know, it's been reflect that our campus at MMU actually is really safe. And I do so feel you, safe. Even though you, you're very new to it, but you actually do feel safe on campus. That's quite reassuring for us as staff, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, I think, you know, when we were speaking about whether we feel we are safe, I do feel extremely safe within. I live at Burley Fields, you know, it's all well lit. We have good security. We, you know, three different keys to get into our flats. So, yeah, I thought it was really insightful. And the the debate itself, I mean, did you, is this what you expected when you signed up for this? Or you probably wanted to come along? Um, Honestly, I heard about this this afternoon, so I wasn't too sure what to expect, but I'm really glad I came along, and I've learned a lot from this, yeah. And Neve, you're also new to, to MMU. What did, um, is this what you expected as well, a debate like this? Um, I think I had an idea that it would be, like, very modern, so, like, taken into, um, like, current issues into event, um, but I think it picked on some things that I hadn't thought about, like the men's point of view um, was something that I hadn't really thought too much about. Um, and I think it's something that's really important in today's society especially. Um, so okay. yeah, it was interesting. I'm going to come back to you both in just a minute, but from the point of view of Tortoise, tell us a little bit about this, this setup and how it works and what you get from it. So the point of our thinking is they're kind of the engine of our journalism and we come into the room and we speak to as many people as we can. We have some experts but they don't dominate the discussion um, and then we have a room for people whose voices we really want to hear and then from their insight we go and make journalism. So there's been a couple of things that I mentioned there that I immediately want to pick up on. I know that Matt was scribbling down stories as well. So then we'll go off and we'll talk about that and we'll, we hope to use this as a prompt for pieces, for audio, for video, for all of our journalism. Right. Don, one of the things that, that you mentioned was about, you know, the, the, the sense that Imogen and Neve have about the place being relatively safe, but then there's quite a lot of online dangers, aren't there, for students? Is that, is that one of the things that you come across from this discussion? Yeah, absolutely. The conversation was about physical danger, about physical space, about feeling safe. And, you know, lots of students have said they felt quite safe. There's isolated incidents. But what I'm really interested to find out is whether students actually feel safe online and being part of a university community makes them feel more safe or less safe or when you come to university you come to a new community you're opening yourself up to a whole load of new people physically in the real world and online you join lots of organizations first thing people do when they come to university is join a facebook group for their halls or their course and it's and then the conversations happen there and i wonder whether those relationships online are actually make you safe or people say things that um, make you feel less safe. I just wondered from a student point of view whether you felt less safe online, particularly when you come to a new place in a new city. Just wondering if that's... Lee, what, what do you think? I think um, for me it goes back to the issue of like generational. Um, the, like the point that... The problem is I've been on social media for a good six years now, like it's a very long time. Um, so I actually think I'm I'm so used to everything that's on social media and the issues that you can have on there with people making comments and and having like some issue with you and like bullying online. Um, so I think to me, like it didn't make much difference feeling safe in general on social media and then coming to university and feeling safe online in that aspect too. Um, but I think there's definitely 
the risk that people will um, have online when you come to university. You know, like suddenly loads of people have got your contact details without you really knowing how um, and you're added to so many groups there's that risk of it being open for your information to get out and, and people to start using that against you so I think there is that added risk um, in any sense yeah. yeah interesting interesting Imogen I want to ask one question really which is about this this process of slow news and gathering news and getting information and getting opinions in this way because one of the things that Don and I will be teaching you in the next few years is getting stories really quickly because for a lot of journalists that's I mean that's the way that both of us have worked in the past and that's that's one of the things that we will be encouraging you to turn stories around quickly but this is a much more thoughtful I guess kind of inclusive process as well where the journalists are trying to to write stories and approach the the news approach stories and, and issues in a very different way have you come across the idea of slow journalism already or and or are you kind of taken in with this method of getting a story together I have not come across it prior to this evening no but I think this was a really good way of you know gathering information gathering a story because you know it was only a small few of us but these are some matters I've not considered before and you know I will t consider my safety around campus and stuff and yeah so this is good. <laughs> right okay well look thanks very much indeed and thanks very much to, to Tortoise for bringing Matt and yourselves up here and uh, I hope I hope you've had a useful night. Yeah but it's been brilliant actually and it's made me even reconsider the way we phrased the question for the evening so that's been perfect thank you so much. Okay well thanks all for coming and bang to rights back to the studio. So thanks to Claudia from Tortoise, Don, Imogen and Neve. Finally, it's the anniversary this week of the brutal murder of the Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi, who was kidnapped, killed and dismembered inside the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. Dave, we've been watching the BBC Panorama programme mm. where the reporter Jane Corbyn examines a series of audio tapes and transcripts of what appears to have happened on that day, the 2nd of October last year. Walidi rahimahullah, Ahmad Khashoggi. <laughs> Jamal Khashoggi. Smart, kind. An outspoken Saudi journalist. He vanished after walking into an embassy. Tonight on Panorama, we hear from two women who've listened to recordings of what happened next. The horror of listening to uh, somebody's voice and the fear in someone's voice makes a shiver go through your body. The sound indicates that he is suffocated, uh, probably with a plastic bag over his head. A year on, his body has still not been found. Will those responsible for the killing of Jamal Khashoggi get away with it? Yeah, really shocking, actually, you know, and uh, I was sat there you know, open-mouthed at uh, the depravity of what had taken place, the apparent, you know, um, willingness to, you know, to kill a journalist in an embassy in the middle of the day, and, you know, alleged collusion and cover-ups, and just the sort of matter of, the everyday matter-of-factness of it. Um, really, really shocking. And actually, you know, um, we probably don't talk about this enough to our students, um, about the dangers that, that journalists face worldwide. You know, we tend to forget that, we go about our business, thankfully, you know, in liberal democracy where we don't face daily threats. And, but this is a really serious issue. Uh, I know that Amal Clooney has brought this up as a, as a worldwide issue that journalists, you know, it's a very dangerous time to be a journalist in many parts of the world. Um, you know, dangerous and fatal. 
Yeah, and a number of journalists and reporters in, in Hong Kong, for example, have been, been kind of deliberately targeted of course, yeah, by, yeah, by yeah, the Hong Kong yeah, police. Yeah. And so on. Yeah. so uh, we have to keep this right up there on the agenda. Yeah. So um, we'll put the links to that Panorama episode in, in the show notes. I'd also want to recommend the Guardian Today in Focus podcast from this morning, where the former Al Jazeera director Wada Hafar remembers his friend uh, Jamal Khashoggi on the first anniversary, this first anniversary today of his murder. So before we go, remember you can subscribe to Bang to Rights on Apple Podcasts, and as usual, you'll also find us on Stitcher, or you can search for Bang to Rights on the MMU Northern Quota SoundCloud feed. That's all one word: MMU Northern Quota. But we have been bang to rights thanks very much dave thanks pete thanks jez thanks pete as usual you do let us know uh, on twitter at, at rights bang if there are topics or issues which you want us to cover in future editions in the meantime thanks for listening dave you need to get on with the the news <laughs> session with the students thanks for listening this week we'll see you soon <laughs>